This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning, everyone. If you just come in, we invite you to take a seat. It's quite full. Um, so if, if you have a seat next to you that you're not holding, if you could just put your hand up and then maybe someone can come. Or if you can move into the middle, that would be great. And we'll leave the outside seats um, vacant so that people can sit down. There's teenagers at the back. They can stand up forever. Don't worry about them. Oh, they're my students from Weimar Academy, so they, they, they've learned to stand for a very long time. Yeah, fine. There's a few more seats here if you want. Another one here. Okay, so um, welcome back. How many of you, this is your first session with us here? Okay, a number of you. How many of you are back after the first one? Cool. All right, great. Okay, so um, we had our first session, which was looking at the craziest book, I believe, that Ellen White ever wrote, the book of education. And for this presentation, we're going to look at the man of God. Then we'll have Adam and Eve tomorrow, Job, Naaman, and Samson. But today, uh, for our final seminar this morning, we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 13. Why did God kill his own prophet? Was it purely because he was disobedient, or is there an end-time lesson for us to learn? Why did God kill his own prophet? have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, for some of us, this may be a question we've never asked before. It may be a passage of scripture that we've never read before. For many of us, it's just something that we don't really understand. And so, Father, we come not as skeptics. Lord, we come curious to know what is it that your word is trying to say to us this morning. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would be here would remove any distractions from our minds or anyone around us that would be a hindrance um, to us hearing the message that you have for our hearts. Be with us at this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you um, one or two more quotes. Look at this. It says, As an educator, no part of the Bible is of what? Greater value than are its biographies. As an educator, no part of the Bible is of greater value than are its biographies. How many of you in this room are educators? The more you think about that, the more you'll think you have to put your hand up. Because really we're all educators, or we're all meant to be educators. We're all meant to educate someone about the Lord. Can you say amen? So as an educator... No part of the Bible is of greater value than are its biographies. These biographies differ from all others in that they are absolutely true to life. They are absolutely true. In other words, what these biographies allow us to do is they allow us to see the mind of the person. This is the difference between the the Bible biographies and the biographies that are written just about great people that have lived. You read about Nelson Mandela and you can read about all of the great things that he did, but you can't read about what he thought unless he explicitly states it. The Bible, however, gives us a peer into the mind through these Bible biographies. Look at this. It is impossible... For any finite mind to interpret rightly in all things the workings of another. This is why we're told not to judge people, because we don't know what they're thinking. None but he who reads the heart, who discerns the secret springs of motive and action, can with absolute truth delineate character or give a faithful picture of a human life. In God's word alone is found such delineation. In other words, within these Bible biographies, motives and actions can be discerned. The secret things that you and I would otherwise not be privy to can be made available to us 
through these stories. They are absolutely true to life. Now, for those of you that joined us, you know how this part's going to go. For those of you that came back, we have an ultimate tip. They're laughing already. You'll catch on. Let's read it. Always ask why. Okay? When we're reading the Bible, we want to approach it with a healthy curiosity, not doubting nor with skepticism. We want to approach we want to approach it with a healthy curiosity. Always ask what? Why? And our other ultimate tip is what? Question everything. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read 1 Kings chapter 13 in its entirety, okay? So that is 34 verses. Now, hopefully you guys are used to this. We're going to read, and we'll read together. Normally, I would suggest when reading a passage, if you want to get the most out of it, you don't just read it once. You read it about four times over. Read it at your normal pace. Read it much faster than your normal pace. Then read it much slower. Like, much slower. Look at every word that's there. And then read it again normally. We'll read it normally just together. And there'll be more than enough time, I'm sure, when you go home to read it in all your different speeds. First Kings chapter 13, verse 1. Is everyone there? This is not Second Kings 13. This is not First Peter or any other book. Make sure you're in the right place. And behold... There came a man of God out of Judah. I'm going to pause. When I pause, you don't pause. By the word of the Lord unto Bethel and Jeroboam stood by the altar. So we're given some context immediately. A man of God, this is his name, apparently. Oh, this is the name that we're given for him. He is just known as the man of God. And there's a reason for that. He came out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Does anyone know who Jeroboam is? What is his position? He's king. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half of thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way, and returned not, by the way that he came to Bethel. That's Act 1. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the donkey. So they saddled him the donkey, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak, 
And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, there thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turnest again to go by the way that thou camest. He said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back, and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place, of which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers. Second act done. And it came to pass, after he had eaten bread, and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the donkey to which the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the donkey stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way and the lion standing by the carcass and they came and told it the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, it is the man of God who is disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke unto him. And he spoke to his son saying, saddle me the donkey. And they saddled him. And he went and found his carcass cast in the way, and the donkey and the lion standing by the carcass. The lion had not eaten the carcass, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the donkey, and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And it came to pass, after he had buried him, that he spoke to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre wherein this man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places, whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the high priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. It's a very interesting story. When you read it naturally, you have a lot of questions. If you do approach this passage with a healthy curiosity, you'll have a Bible full of flags. Because there's so many things that jump out. For those of you that are just joining us in this session, I I gave some advice whereby when you're reading the scriptures, if there's something that seems to jump out, if there's something that perhaps you don't really understand that looks like it's out of place or a little bit irregular, just flag it. Maybe a mental flag, maybe write it down in a notebook, maybe put a little pencil flag um, in in, in, in your Bible. In fact, it's just put it out there. It's always better to write in your Bible in pencil because you learn. You can get rid of the pencil. Can't get rid of the pen. And also, a uh, pen smudges over time. And then your Bible is just a book of ink. But it's already a book of ink. Anyways, so it says, let's look again at verse 1. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah. Where's he going? He's going towards Bethel. Who's in Bethel? Jeroboam. He goes there, he prophesies um, against the altar, against Jeroboam, so on and so forth. And then we get to verse 7. Now, I would like to take a little bit more time, but we only have an hour for each seminar, so we kind of have to run just a little bit. 
Verse 7, and the king said unto the man of God, what does he say? Read that for me. Come home with me and refresh thyself and I will give thee a reward. Now, again, what did I ask you to ask? Why? Why does Jeroboam want the old prophet to go home with him? Come home with me and refresh thyself. That's a question that you should be asking. And it becomes a lot more important later, as you already know, having read the passage. Come home with me and refresh thyself. Where the man of God has come from, it's quite a journey. And the Lord has given him a command. What is that command? We find it in the next verse. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou will give me what? Half of thine house, I will not go with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. Now, if here's the thing. Here's the thing. You always want to try and read the scripture with new eyes. With what? New eyes. Now, once you've read it, that's impossible. Right? You can't reread. Jesus died? Right? You read that once and you, it, it's there. It's done. You can't go back and be surprised the next time you read it. You can be impacted, but you can't, you can't read it for the first time again. But you want to at least try and immerse yourself in the reading. Even though you know the end of the story, have you realized that the Bible doesn't care that you know the end of the story? It doesn't care. Have you tried reading through the Gospels? It's like, okay, just in case you're wondering, here's the names of the disciples. You haven't even got halfway through the Gospel yet. There's Matthew and Mark and Luke and Judas who betrays Jesus at the end and that's why he dies. <laughs> like it just gives it away immediately. Just in case you're reading this for the first time and you have no idea what's going to happen, we're going to tell you in chapter 3. <laughs> right? So the Bible doesn't care if you know the end before you get there. In fact, it actually just gives it away at the start. You know, Genesis chapter 3, the whole Bible's there. Right? You're going to have a seed. He's going to crush the serpent. He's going to get a bruise on his heel. That's the whole story. Revelation has a habit of doing this. It has a habit of doing this. It says, and she shall bring forth a man-child, and the man-child shall rule with a rod of iron. Done. Whole Bible, one verse. Right? So it doesn't care that you know the story before. It just asks that you pay attention to it. So you're reading through it, and you're like, okay, this man seems quite resolute. He said, even if you give me half of your house, or half of your kingdom as it should be interpreted, I'm still not going to go back. And then he says, by the way, I just want you to know, I will not go with you, neither. Now the man didn't say, hey, come back to my house and eat and drink, although it's implied. But the the man of God says, I will not go with you, neither will I eat bread, nor will I drink water in this place. It's as if it has a really bad reputation for its bread and water. He's saying, no, I'm not going to eat your food. I'm just going to go home. I'm going to get it then. But we do, of course, find out that there is a reason For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. Okay? Now you might be tempted to read this verse and think that this is a because I said so. Right? For those of you that were in our first session, I believe that there's nowhere in the Bible that we're commanded to do something because God says so. He he must have a reason. He says, come, let us reason together. And then he's not just going to say that that reason is because I said so. There's going to be an actual reason. He tells the man of God, do not do this. And there is a reason. It may not be explicitly stated to the man of God, but remember that these biographies are written to us. They're the most valuable piece of scripture to us as educators. They are completely true to life. And so the question is, why? Why would God say to a man that's traveling a distance, don't eat and don't drink? What do you think he's going to want to do when he stops his traveling? He wants to eat and drink. What's the first thing that you want to do when you get off a plane? You want to eat and drink. You didn't even have to walk it, right? You're on a plane, but you know, who wants that fake white bread, right? If, if, If you... If you didn't order the vegan meal or they didn't let you and you get on the plane, all you can get is the fake white bread. And it's tough. So as soon as you get off the plane, you want to eat and drink. God says to the man of God, after this long journey, do not eat and do not drink. 
And just to make it maybe perhaps just a little bit more complicated, don't even go back the same way that you came. You have to ask why. If you're reading the Bible and you're not asking why for these things, it's going to be boring. Very, very boring. Because you're going to read it and think, well, why didn't he eat? Oh, because God said so. Oh, wonderful. Now I know. So this is the reason that he gives, but he doesn't give the why. Now, just remind me, what did Jeroboam offer him? Half of his house. And all he asked him to do in exchange for that was to, to come back with him to his house and to refresh himself. Now, when you, when you consider, you see, this is what we do oftentimes. Oftentimes, we don't look at these characters as real people. We look at them as, as a summary of actions. Jeroboam comes out and says, grab him, and then his hand withers in. I mean, picture that. Probably looks a lot worse than this. And then he changes completely, and he's like, oh, please, please, can you pray to the Lord and ask, me, ask, ask him that I can have my hand back? And the prophet's like, yeah, sure. It says he beseeched him, like he begged the Lord that the king could have his hand back. Gets it back. And then the king's like, hey, you want to come back to my house? Have some bread? Have some water? Interested? What? (laughs) What kind of situation is this? He's gone. He's rebuked the king. He said, by the way, all of those priests and prophets that you set up, all of their bones are going to be ripped open on this altar. And you with your little pointy finger, gone is that hand. And then he gets it back. He's like, hey, you want to come over? (laughs) When we just read it and we don't think, it just seems like the strangest things are happening. Why would you invite someone back to your house if they just nearly chopped your arm off? Right? I know they gave it back. And some of you might think, well, he's just being grateful. Well, you don't have to be grateful for getting your hand back if you didn't lose it in the first place. Right? I don't think that Jeroboam is just feeling like he really needs to give back. I was like, you know, man of God, you've done so much for me. Let me just help you out here. Do you want to come? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Come back to my house. Now, this is highlighted again when we see the man of God's second interaction with someone. We read in 1 Kings chapter 13, in verse 11, Now there dwelt a what? An old prophet in Bethel. Where is he? Okay, let's put these pieces together. Where's the old prophet? in Bethel. Where's the man of God from? Judah. He's traveling from Judah to where? Bethel. Why? He's going there to preach, right? To preach against false worship, essentially. Amen? But there's already a prophet there. Right? There's already a prophet there. We know nothing about this old prophet. All we know is what he is. What do we now know about the old prophet? False. He's a false prophet. Or he is at least a former prophet. Maybe he used to be faithful and now he's not. How do we know that? How did you come to that conclusion? Okay, he lies, but like I said, You need to approach it as if you have not read the end. What do you know about the old prophet? And all you've read is up to verse 11. God didn't use him. Right? There's a prophet there and there's false worship happening in his backyard. But God doesn't use him. God has to go and call the man of God from Judah to come down to Bethel and say, rebuke what's happening there. So we know that this man is unfaithful because God could have just used him. Now, here's the thing. What else do we know about him? Let's read verse 11 again. What else do we know about him? He has sons. Good. Where were his sons? They were at the worship service. Right? So where was he? At his house. Why?
Why would he be at his house if his sons are at the worship service? Is he not a former prophet of the Lord? So what do we know about him now? I think we can conclude that he's definitely turned his back on God. That he's no longer God's mouthpiece, evidenced by the fact that God had to call the man of God. But it seems as though he's not fully committed to apostasy. Right? Because he's not attending Jeroboam's worship service either. But he is interested. When they get home, you know, the sons tell him exactly what happened and he's like, oh, really? Interesting. So he's not necessarily taking part in the worship service, but he has got a keen interest. Now, this then should surprise you. Verse 14. And this old prophet went after the man of God and found him where? Sitting under an oak tree. Why is the man of God sitting under an oak tree? Why do you sit down? He's tired. Or, because he's lazy. But in this case, I think we can conclude that the man of God is tired. So he does what anyone would do. He finds some shade in the middle of the desert, right? You can imagine that's pretty valuable. He takes a seat. And this is where the old prophet finds him. Sitting down. No longer moving. Are you with me? No longer progressing, stationary, still, resting. And then he says this. Are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he says, I am. Then he said unto him, come home with me and eat bread. Why? Was he there when Jeroboam asked the the man of God to come back and eat bread in his house? Was, Was the old prophet there? No, he wasn't there. What a strange request to get twice in one day. Because neither Jeroboam nor the old prophet agree with the man of God. They are on the opposite side. Why do they want him to come back to their house? They obviously haven't communed with one another. It seems very strange to me, perhaps even a flag, that the old prophet would have the exact same request that King Jeroboam had. Why could they possibly want him to go back to their house and not just to stay in the house, but to what? But to eat bread. You have to be asking why. If you're not asking why, this is just a strange collection of verses that would make a very strange movie. Right? Come home with me and eat bread. Now, Let's pick back up. Verse 16. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. That is almost word for word what he said the first time. What did he say the first time that he didn't say this time? Even if you gave me half your house, I'm not coming back with you. He leaves that out this time. Interesting. What might that suggest? Now, some of you might think, well, you know, we're bordering over to, you know, happenstance and maybes and ifs and whats and buts. But these things can be implied. None of these things that have been recorded here have been recorded as mere information. All scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is given for instruction, for a proof for doctrine, for righteousness. So I don't believe in coincidences when I read the Bible. He says word for word everything that he said except if you give me half your house. I don't know. I'm guessing his resolve might be lessening here. Then after that, for it was said to me by the word of the Lord, he repeats exactly the word. He said unto him, I am a prophet also as you are. Is that true? No. I mean, it does say at the end, but he lied to him. 
Now, it doesn't say what he lied to him about. We know that he definitely lied to him about the fact that, well, let's read. I am a prophet also as thou art. Is that a blatant lie? It's a little bit of a lie, right? He's kind of a prophet. He's just not a good one. He says, I am a prophet as you are. It's somewhat of a half truth. And an angel spoke the word of the Lord to me. Now, is that a lie? Uh, We don't know. I think an angel spoke to him. I just don't think it was the angel of the Lord. It might be the angel of his Lord. But yes, he is guising it in the sense where the actual God of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the one that came and spoke. So yeah, he's lying. But notice that he is determined to get this man back to his house to eat bread and drink water. Verse 19 is where it all falls apart. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. You know, some of the craziest decisions ever made in history were made because people thought they were doing the Lord's will. Some of the craziest decisions have been made because someone put a thus saith the Lord at the beginning of their request. The man of God feels that firsthand. Now watch this. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto who? Which prophet? The old prophet. Now, God is speaking through the old prophet. What does that tell you? You have to ask why. Why is God speaking through the old prophet? I thought he couldn't speak through the old prophet. Right. Why could God not use the old prophet to preach against Bethel? Any ideas? Why go to the trouble of calling down the man of God? Why can't he use him? Anyone? Just let's take some hands because otherwise we won't be able to hear anything. Right at the back. Sorry? To prove his faith? I'm just asking if that's what you said. I'm not saying you're wrong. Okay, cool. All right, so, so he calls the man of God maybe to prove his faith. That's a good question, something I should have, I should have touched on. That's also, I believe, um, and I fully get why you're, why you're coming from that angle, but I think it's, it's a shortcut. Because sometimes we're like, well, why did God tell him not to eat or drink? To test his faith. Yeah, because that's what God does. God sends you on missions to share the word and then punishes you for doing it. Right? But the thing is, we don't often think about these things. We just say, oh, well, God was just trying to test him. But does that line up with the rest of the character of God that you see in the Bible? God can't use the old prophet. And we came to the conclusion already is because he's unfaithful. Why can he use him now? Didn't he just lie? Right? He lied. The Bible said he lied. Right there. Why can he use him now? Yes, right at the back there. Okay, the man of God believed him. We're getting closer. Okay, the gifts of God are irrevocable. So he's a prophet. So God can use him, is what you're saying. Right? If he chooses to, yeah. The man of God disobeyed. So what does that make the man of God now? Unfaithful. What's the old prophet? Unfaithful. The old prophet couldn't be used because he was unfaithful, and now the man of God is too unfaithful. So they're on a level playing field, right? God doesn't seem to think so, because now he uses the old prophet. It almost looks as if the old prophet is less unfaithful than the man of God. Now God is using the old prophet to speak. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord. This is a thus saith the Lord. For as much as you have disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and have not kept the command which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back 
and has eaten bread and drunk water in this place, of the which the Lord did say to thee, eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the tombs of thy fathers. You're going to die for what you did. Read the next verse silently. What's the flag? Can you say that again? All right. They sit down to eat. He begins to eat. And then the word of the Lord comes to the old prophet and says, you're going to die. What does he do after the word of the Lord? He finishes his meal. He finishes his meal. Now, how many, of you, how, many, how many of you realize that hit you deep the first time you read it? Right? After God speaks to him and says, listen, you're going to die for your disobedience. He finishes his meal. Oh, I think he believed. This is a picture of hopelessness, if you will. Knowing that the word of God is completely true and feeling the uttermost guilt for disobeying it. He stays there and just finishes his meal, resigned to what's going to happen to him. Came to pass after he ate bread, ate bread, and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the donkey to which the old prophet traveled on. Have you got the picture yet? There's a man of God who came to prophesy against a false worship service. He's caught up by a former prophet on a donkey. And by the time they're done, he leaves as the former prophet, traveling on the former prophet's donkey. They look the same now. And when it gets to the end of the story, the only one that cares for this man of God's bones is the old prophet. He takes those bones, puts them in his tomb, and when he dies, he's put in that tomb too. They're both the same. There's no difference. They're buried in the same tomb. When Josiah does come later and digs up all the graves and digs up all of the, and breaks down the high places and the altar, he comes to a tomb that says, the man of God, and he leaves it alone. He says, don't dig up this one. This is the one that belonged to the man of God. But in there are the bones of Jeroboam too. Now, That's how the story ends. But we haven't answered the question. Why did God kill his own prophet? You might think, well, he disobeyed. Well, why are you alive then? Right? We're not prophets, but we've been given a prophetic message. We're called to be priests. Right? Some of you may say, well, I haven't been given the responsibility that a prophet has been given. Okay, well then why did Ellen White live into her 90s? Do you think she ever sinned? Probably. Now maybe she didn't outwardly disobey the word of the Lord, but if you want to stop reading at, well, because he disobeyed, then that's fine with you. I'm going to try and go a little bit further. What we need to really understand this story is what you and I would call context, or in other words, 1 Kings chapter 12. When we look at 1 Kings chapter 12, we get to see a very, very clear picture of why what just happened, happened. Go there with me. First Kings chapter 12, we'll go from verse 25. We have just less than 15 minutes. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and they dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. Jeroboam, so, you know, does not want everyone to go back to David, okay, to the house of David. He doesn't want him going up to the other kingdom. 
If this people go to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's scared that the people at this time, what word? Time. At this time, they're going to head back up and then they're going to start worshiping the true God. And then eventually they're going to be like, why do we even, why are we down there with all of this false worship? Let's just go and kill him and then just reunite all the kingdoms, right? Wonderful. Great idea. Verse 28. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he put one in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. He sets up these two false idols and says, you don't need to go up there, you can stay right here. In other words, it's more convenient for you. It's more, you don't have to travel the whole way. You're down here with us. We'll set up two nice little, you know, worship services and you can just stay and worship here. It highlights that he put one up in Dan because it's the furthest away. But catch this, the people were still willing to travel to Dan to worship. Convenience. They'd rather go the whole way up to Dan if it meant that they could have a worship experience without actually being drawn to the Lord. Now, you guys have all traveled probably a very far distance to get to GYC. Praise the Lord. Other people like to stay closer to home. I mean, what if you actually had an experience with God one weekend? Imagine you had to make changes in your life. God forbid, right? It goes on. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people which were not the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month. What month? Eighth month. No mere information here. The eighth month on the 15th day of the month like the feast that is in Judah. Like the feast that's in where? Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel. Do anyone know what Bethel means? House of God. Wonderful. Sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the 8th month. Even in the month which he had devised of his own heart. Interesting language. And ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Now, the ball hasn't dropped yet. I know the light bulbs haven't been flying out. But let's, let's, let's look at this. Let's analyze this. Jeroboam sets up a worship service. A what? <clears throat> a worship service. But it's a false worship service. And what do we know about the worship service? Well, we know there's idols. Right? No, there's images that they're actually worshipping, golden calves, right? Idols that represent their deliverance but didn't actually come from their deliverer. Then he sets up a number of worship services so that it's convenient for the people to get to. There's no real sacrifice on the part of the people to get there. Are you with me so far? Then he takes the lowest of the people, all right? Now this doesn't mean the shortest people. Right? It means the lowest, morally the lowest people, and makes them the priests. Not the Levites who were meant to be priests, the lowest of the people. And then he offers upon the altar. Okay. He does so on the 15th day of the eighth month. Anyone know their Jewish feasts? Right? What's the first one? Passover, second one. Ooh, guys, come on. 
Right, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. They all happen on the 10th, 11th, and 12th day of the first month of the year. Then we go to Pentecost, 50 days later. That happens bang in the middle of these seven months. In the Jewish calendar of 12 months, all of the feasts happen in the first seven months. There's seven of them. Three in one month, one in another, and then three in the seventh month. The three in the seventh month, the first one starts on the first day. It's called the Feast of, anyone know? Trumpets. All right, Feast of Trumpets. Why? Because on the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement, right? 10th day of the seventh month, day of atonement. And so there's a feast of trumpets that are blown for 10 days to let people know that the day of atonement is coming. Make sense? And then after the day of atonement, they have the feast of tabernacles or the feast of ingathering or the feast of booths. It has various names. It's basically the end of year celebration feast, right? Because the high priest comes out of the heavenly sanctuary, all the sins of Israel have been forgiven, and they start anew, a new year fresh with the Lord, right? Great, so they celebrate. That feast starts on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, don't miss this, is a feast by which you celebrate what took place on the Day of Atonement. Are you with me on that? The Day of Atonement was the most important day in the Jewish calendar, right? The whole cleansing of the sanctuary, very, very important thing, as I'm sure you know, as wonderful young Seventh-day Adventists. Jeroboam sets up a feast on the 15th day of what month? The eighth month. He says, like the feast that is in Judah. He's imitating the feast of Judah. He does it on the same day of the month, but just one month later. Why? Why not do your feast on the 15th day of the seventh month as well? Uh huh. So people can go to both. Yeah, if you want to go there, you can go. But remember, we've got this one down here after. You have to come back. It's like the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, that is a celebration of what's happened on the Day of Atonement. That a sacrifice has been made, accepted, and your sins are clean, gone. So let's celebrate. Except if you just had the Feast of Tabernacles, then it would just be a celebration, even though nothing's happened before. What are you celebrating? Right? Like the offering that Cain brought. No lamb, but he brings fruits. A thank you offering. Thank you, Lord. For what? For what? You can't bring in a, a, a sacrifice, an offering without the lamb, the true offering, right? So, so Abel brings the lamb because, you know, he, he believes that the Messiah will come and die and forgive his sins. And he brings the fruits also to say thank you and the Lord consumes it. But the Lord doesn't receive Cain's offering because it's just fruits. It's just thank you. It's just celebration without the substance. So Jeroboam says, why don't you come on the 15th day of the 8th month and we'll just celebrate. We'll have like what they have the feast of, in the Feast of Judah, the Feast of Tabernacles, but we'll have it here. No sacrifice necessary. Oh, wouldn't that be good? Imagine if we could have heaven without the sacrifice. Imagine if we could have eternity without ever having to change. I bet you that worship service was very well attended. I'm going to put the pieces together. You're going to have an aha moment. Jeroboam is the king, right? He sets up his own false worship service. Don't miss this now. On a day that is like God's day of worship. It's just a little bit different. It's not a massive change. It's just one numeral different. Right? He sets it up convenient. There's so many worship services that you can just go to whichever one you want because they're all close. He takes the worst of the people and makes them the priests. Maybe this is just about Jeroboam, right? I mean, there's surely not any other thing that fits into this type. 
I can't think of another religious movement that would set up a day of worship like God's day, but just a little bit different. And then put the lowest of the people, the morally worst people in charge. Go back to the slides. Okay. Nice, yes. It's too much for them to go. Let's put one in Dan. Even unto Dan, they were going. There's the lowest of the people. Like the feast that is in Judah. Something that he had devised in his own heart. I think this is the conclusion that I've come to, that this is only about Jeroboam. There's no, like, illusions. There's no, there's not, this isn't pointing to anything. It's just Jeroboam. But this whole, this, this seminar was just a joke. Just pretend that we were going to do something important. It's just about Jeroboam. Right? Is there another religious movement that has one man at their head that sets up a religious service that's convenient for anyone to attend, that fills that religious service with idols, and says, here are your gods that have delivered you, Israel. Images that you can worship. And then takes the worst of the people, the morally worst people, and puts them in charge and says, you can look after everyone, especially the kids. The morally worst. You tell me something that's morally worse than that. And then sets up the day of worship like God's day, but a little bit different. How about we make it the day after? So if you want to go to that one, you can too. Catch this, catch this. What is Jeroboam? What is he? King. Why is he offering sacrifices on the altar? Who, who, who's meant to do that? The priest, right? So Jeroboam then is both king and priest. He's both head of what? Church and head of state. Setting up a day of worship like God's day, putting the morally worst people in charge of their idol service. Get it where I'm going with this? Do I have to spell it out? I'm not good at spelling. My students know this. So God gives the man of God something to, God gives the man of God something to do. He says, go down there and preach against that. Because that's not true worship. That's not my worship. My worship is done according to my word. So go there and preach. But guess what, man of God? I don't want you to drink or eat whilst you're there. Why? Feast of Tabernacles. Do you know what that first word is? What do you do in a feast? You eat and you drink. If the man of God goes down there and preaches against their worship service, but then stops and make it look like he's taking part, what kind of message is that? What kind of man of God preaches the word and then acts opposed to it? Right? What does it do to the message? It kills it. You and I know we've done it so many times. How many times have we gone and witnessed and then gone home and witnessed against what we witnessed? Right? He sends the man of God and says, preach against that, but do not eat or drink their food because they're going to think that you're just one of them. And you know what? I already have an old prophet there that I lost. I don't want to lose you as well. Did you notice? Did you notice that when the man of God started to preach the word, Jeroboam was against the word? And then Jeroboam received a wound. Received a wound, right? Tam was wounded. And then what happened to the wound? There was some healing. Coincidence, surely. 
he moves from aggressive behavior, stop him, to friendship evangelism. Come back with me, we're the same. All of us were the same. All just prophets of God. The word of God came to you, the word of God came to me. Your word of God is different to my word of God. That's fine. We're the same. I'll close with this thought. The man of God is given a message that says this. Go and preach against a false system of worship and don't eat or drink. That's it. Did you know that the day is soon approaching when you and I will have to preach that message without having access to food and drink? The time is coming when that mark of the beast is enforced and the Bible says that no man will be able to what? No man will be able to buy and no man will be able to sell. Can you grow your own produce? Yes, of course. You can eat and drink that. But essentially, essentially we're put in a position where we cannot buy or sell food. The man of God is to come and he's to witness against the false system of worship. And he's told that you must be faithful to that message. Don't eat or drink. The message that he actually preaches is this. Obey the word of the Lord. But, if it gets really difficult, if you find yourself like super hungry, really thirsty, it's okay to disobey a little. It's okay to disobey. Just if you get really hungry or thirsty, you can disobey the word of the Lord. I believe this message is for us. I believe this man of God doesn't have a name because he's me and you. He's a man of God. He's a woman of God. He's been given a message that he must go and preach. And when the time comes that you and I can't buy or sell, we can't eat or drink, we can't live life the way that we used to be, and it gets really, really hard, what are you going to do? Because if you don't obey the word of the Lord, a lion is waiting. And we will be counted just as the old prophets were. Their bones and our bones will be the same. The message of 1 Kings chapter 13 is a message for God's people, God's end time people. You can't just obey. You need a why. You need a reason. You need a reason for your faith. You need an actual, real, deep-rooted belief. Otherwise, when that time comes, we'll be shaken out. We'll just be warming the pews for the real zealous ones that eventually come in. The ones that finish the work, the 11th hour workers. Or maybe it's just about Jeroboam. Maybe there's no actual application of the scriptures and we're just told to read it so we can say to our spouses and our friends, I had my devotion this morning. And I can get up and feel righteous and go about my day thinking that the Lord is with me. Or maybe, maybe every time I open this book, there's some helpful thought. Maybe every time I open this book, God wants to speak to me personally. To do something in me personally. To give me a why for my faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this story, this sometimes confusing story, the story that doesn't really seem to, seem to make much sense at the beginning. But Father, all we did was read the word. We didn't go anywhere else. We stayed in this passage. And we learned, Lord, just what's before us. Father, you, cho- you told us to choose this day. Who will we serve? We cannot serve both God and mammon. We cannot sit on the fence. We cannot remain idle. We cannot refuse to make the choice. A refusal is a choice. 
Father, help us to be the men and the women of God that you have called us to be. Father, forgive our unfaithfulness. Forgive my unfaithfulness, Lord. Change our hearts. Give us a real experience with you. In these days that are coming up, Lord, you've called us to be a witness to the whole world. Lord, I'm happy to start by being a witness just in my own house, with my own family, my own friends. Put a light in us that no man can quench, that cannot be hidden, Lord. Help us to not just have a because I said so relationship with you, but to get to know you deeply and intimately. Father, that's our desire today, that we may know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.